welcome to Lone Star Latter-day Saint Voices, a podcast dedicated to conversations with members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in North Texas. I'm your host, Eric Egan. Marmaduke was part of him for almost his entire life. My point now is not to change the style too much or anything else. It's to let the readers have their friend and to go through life with a smile every day. That's the voice of Paul Anderson. He's the current cartoonist of the famous Marmaduke comic strip. Paul is a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and lives in Flower Mound, Texas. His father, Brad Anderson, created Marmaduke and produced the comic strip for more than 60 years before his passing. And now Paul is continuing his father's legacy, producing new Marmaduke comic strips for daily publication. On this episode of Lone Star Latter-day Saint Voices, we will visit with Paul about his life as the son of a cartoonist, his faith journey, and some miraculous ways he has clearly seen the hand of the Lord in his life. Paul, thank you for joining us. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Let's start out by getting to know you. Tell us a little bit about where you live now and how long you've been in the Metroplex. We live in Flower Mound. We've been here since 2001. My family is originally from upstate New York, western tip of the state, about 60 miles to the west of Buffalo, about 100 miles east of Kirtland, Ohio. It's a very rural area, a lot of grape growing, a lot of vineyards back there, beautiful, beautiful country. My family goes back there several hundred years, but we moved to northern San Diego County when I was in the second grade. I spent most of my time in Vista, California. Beautiful part of the country. Yes. So your father is the creator of Marmaduke. Yes. Marmaduke was created and published in 1954. Dad had been an artist his entire life from the time he was a small boy up through high school. When he went in the Navy in World War II, he took his art supplies with him. My mother, his girlfriend, acted as his agent. While Dad was serving on a combat ship in the South Pacific, he would take his time and uh, draw cartoons. Freelance, it was called. Send them back, and Mom would send them out to the different magazines and publications around the country. So he even had that as a side job. After the war, he went to Syracuse University, and he could have been on the staff of Syracuse with all tuition paid for for all of his kids, but with two children at that time married, he went out freelancing on his own. And freelancing was just where he would send out comics to the publications of the day, which were quite numerous and quite large in every home, the Saturday Evening Post, Life Magazine, some of those. And you lived on just whatever the editors bought. That was a real leap of faith, but he just pursued his dream and pursued his passion. Then he was thinking about a syndicated strip, and he liked the idea of a dog. And he wanted a big dog because it could be so much more with the expression, with the body language, with the movement, with the eyes. And my grandfather, my father's stepfather, had a boxer named Bruno that became the inspiration for it. Bruno was a character, a boxer, and my grandpa Dell would put a pair of sunglasses on his on his head, put a top hat on, and open the door and let him walk outside along the main road by where he lived. And then Grandpa would sit on the porch and watch all the reaction of the cars 
as the people drove by. And then one day, and we have a we have a photo of this. Somebody put a cigar under his upper lip, and Bruno would walk around the neighborhood with a hat, sunglasses, and a cigar hanging out of his mouth. <laughs> he was a character. So that uh, that became the the inspiration for him. Where did the name Marmaduke come from? Dad heard it somewhere, and he just liked the way it sounded. He liked the way it rolled off his tongue, and so he just picked it up and went with that. It was something very unusual for a dog. And from those beginnings where he started as a freelancer and got this strip going, I assume at some point it kind of accelerated in popularity and went into syndication? Oh, yes. It, it goes into syndication. Syndication is a organization that handles all the features. They handle the production, the distribution. Dad would just do what he loved, which was drawing. He didn't have to worry about anything else. So it was a very, very good arrangement. And yes, it became very popular. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of newspapers around the world. And uh, one of the top panels in the country. It became very good. And he just just never changed a bit. He just continued to do what he loved. What was it like growing up in your home, especially with your dad having such a unique profession? Well, having a parent work at home was not the norm back then. Not at all. It was very, very unusual. And I remember the looks and the questions from people about, why is your father home all day long? And we'd just say he's working. We had a guest house in the back, and that was his office. And we were very careful not to disturb him while he was working. But we would often go in and just stand by his drawing board and watch him draw. It was, it was magical. I mean, I've never seen anybody like that. In fact, one time when I began working with him, and I was comparing how he got ideas and how it drew, he said, I see the finished panel in my mind's eye, and then I sit at my drawing board and I watch as it flows from my mind down my arm, and it comes out of my fingers and it appears on the paper. And it was exactly like that when you watched. It was just an amazing thing. So he was always at home when we worked there. This is how unusual it was. My older brother was in about second grade, and he came home and he said, Mom, are we on welfare? And Mom said, well, no, why do you ask? And she said, well, my teacher asked the class what our dads did. And Mom said, well, what did you say? And my brother said, I told him that Dad sits home all days and draws cartoons. And so the teacher wanted to know if we needed any help. So that was a very kind teacher looking out for us. But that was just about the attitude a lot of people had. And yet his answer was spot on. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, so you'd mentioned earlier starting out in Western New York and then moving to the San Diego area. And your family was not members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Tell us a little bit about how you came to find the church. Well, I was very fortunate to come from a background that was not just religious, but very open to new ideas, open to other people and other cultures, uh, without judgment or without any condemnation. It was just a different way of living. And I was a young teenager, 
early teens. And in upstate New York, we went to the Congregational Church. When we moved to Southern California, it was primarily Methodist. And then about the time I began my own search, uh, my parents started going to the Church of Religious Science, which I really enjoyed very much. They had a very positive outlook. It uh, provided some wonderful principles uh, for living. But I never felt like it was right for me. The story may sound familiar. I would, I would also visit other churches on my own. I would listen to the fellows on radio. And it was the same thing we've heard before. How can there be hundreds and hundreds, thousands of different ideas when there was one son of God on the earth who revealed himself to the world? Never made sense to me, and I never got a satisfactory answer to it from any of the ministers I talked to. Uh, then I met some uh, classmates who were Latter-day Saints, and I began friendships with them. And that was about the time I was 15 years old that we made another move back to New York for a year. Dad just wanted a change, and so we went and lived on Chautauqua Lake. As I said, it was very rural. The high school was, let me see, it was junior high through high school. My class had just over 100 students in it. So it was very small, had a beautiful library. It was a new school. And I would generally go in and pick out a shelf and just start reading the books on that shelf. And I came across a book. It was a brand new book. It had never been checked out called A Marvelous Work and a Wonder by Apostle Grand Richards. And I got done with that book, and I was amazed that I finally found somebody who agreed with what I thought. That's just pretty much how I looked at it. And so I just kept that in mind and thought about it. I knew we were going to be there a year, and we went back to California, began my friendship again with the students, and started going to church with them. Then they suggested the missionaries, which I was fine. It was an easier way for me to learn what this was about. And it was never a struggle for me. It was never a real time of questioning. It was just like you come home after a long trip into your home and you say, yeah, this is where I belong. It was just the most comfortable feeling imaginable. So I was 15 and I wanted to be baptized. And my folks asked me to wait until I was 16. And the reasons for that was first, so I could make sure that that was what I really wanted to do. And by picking an area not too many months off, it wasn't hopeless to me, but I could see the wisdom in it. And I was fine with that. And there was a time when I was in the car with my father. And one has to remember, he was very quiet. I cannot remember him ever like telling us, ordering us what to do. And I asked him about that one time and he said, you knew how you were raised. You knew what was right. Your mother and I knew you would do the right thing. And it was that way with all of the kids. I have a, two brothers and a sister. So we were in the car and I just said, dad, do you have any objection to me joining the Mormon church? And I realized with the name change and all, that wouldn't be appropriate now, but I'll tell it the way it happened. Mm -hmm. And that was the way it was. And he was driving and he thought a minute and he said, Paul, he said, I think the Mormon church is a very fine church. It has some wonderful teachings. All I ask is that if you join it, you live it and you do what they ask. Mm 
and you commit to it. Then he added, I don't mind if you want to become a Mormon, a Catholic, Episcopalian, Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist, whatever works for you, there is good in everything. And that's what I meant about how open they were and how supportive they were of their children. They were not ones to say, you need to go here and you need to go there. It was find your way. So baptized at the age of 16. Correct. And as I taught Sunday school in our ward for the youth for a number of years, loved it. And as I would tell them, the most difficult thing for me when I was 16 and going to church was I had spent so much time look, looking for this, and I was so happy when I found it. And I couldn't comprehend how they could not take things seriously. It, it was flabbergasting to me. <laughs> but I realized, you know, we were all youth, and that's the way it was with them. Something so precious to you and new, to them it was more routine and just what they were used to. Right. It was just what we do on Sunday. Well, so you get to your late teens and ready to move on in the world. And I know that you didn't initially set out to be involved with Marmaduke. You had different career aspirations. Yes, I, uh, I went to a semester of community college close by, and then I decided I wanted to go to Brigham Young University. And my folks had said, whatever university you get into, you can go. I only applied to one. You know, I wasn't thinking too much past that. And I was very, very happy with my acceptance. I think being a convert went a long way to that. Mm -hmm. And so I went up there the second semester of my freshman year. I had two suitcases and the clothes I was wearing, and that was it. But I got right into the uh, university life there and loved it very much. And one day I had still not decided what I wanted to do, but there was an ROTC building at the edge of a large parking lot and they had both the Army and the Air Force programs there. But I would walk by that building and I would see the fellows in the uh, Army program coming back from being out on their maneuvers or whatever they were doing, unloading a trunk with their big backpacks and the mud and the dirt and all. And I thought, okay, they've got to spend all night cleaning that up, polishing their boots, getting ready, Oh, that doesn't sound like anything I'd want to do. And so the next week I walked into the Air Force ROTC into one of the officers' offices, sat down and he said, what can I do for you? And there was a picture to my left on the wall of two fighter planes. And I just pointed at him and I said, I want to fly those. And he said, great, we can use you. So he helped me plan out my academic course so I could be a complete four-year student. And I was fortunate enough to be selected for the pilot program, which is what I wanted to do. And I was very, very grateful for that. It was a long wait to go to pilot training, but it was worth it. We made it, went to pilot training, and so began my Air Force career. And you ended up being in the Air Force for a full 20-year career? Yeah, I spent a, a full career there. I'd been flying for only a couple of years when I had a medical disqualification, which was unfortunate, but you know, life happens. So I, I got into the uh, comptroller career field, which was uh, a budgeting, cost analysis, and those sorts of things. My last assignment was at MacDill Air Force Base in Florida, which is in Tampa. It's the home of an Air Force Air Refueling Wing plus Special Operations Command. And uh, 
we were living in Sarasota. My wife's mother was becoming quite ill and we were getting the first grandkids coming and my wife said, we need to move to Texas. And her parents lived to the east of the Metroplex. Mine lived uh, north of Houston in a town near Conroe called Montgomery. So we came to Flower Mound about 2001. As part of that, then the time came where you had an opportunity to work with your dad. Yes, uh, many cartoonists that had a feature that was that large had a staff of people who would do everything from doing rough layouts to preparing the paper and all for the formatting, to the inking, to the coloring, to everything. Dad always did it himself. And one of my brothers called and said, Paul, Dad's always done this, but he's getting older and it's getting a bit more difficult. Why don't you see if he'll let you help out? And I said, okay. He said, uh, you're the only one who can do this. And I think he must have meant because I didn't have another job at the time, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> so the folks came up to visit and I approached him about it. And so many people think that when there's something that continues as a legacy, something within a family, it's just a normal, okay, now you're gonna do this. It wasn't that way at all. That was probably one of the most tough, long interviews a person could have gone through. He just, I remember he smiled and he said, so you think you can do this, huh? And I said, well, I'd like a try. And he said, okay, I'd like you to do this. And he gave me an assignment. Then he went home and I worked on it. And the next time I saw him, we went over it. I think that went through five or six times. And it wasn't just the drawing, but it was, how will you do it? Where will you do it? What's the process you'll use? How will we integrate this and do it together? He was a wonderful, wonderful mentor and a teacher, very patient, very positive, uh, never an unkind word. It, there was never anything of, well, this isn't good because it was, try doing this when, you, when you're looking at it in that position. Or sometimes, I remember he liked to say, sometimes it's just one small line can make all the difference in a cartoon. So he was very, very, very positive and encouraging. Oh, I look back at some of my early work with him and it's embarrassing. <laughs> he must have seen something there, but I'm glad he did. Well, you must have had some artistic ability to begin with. Well, it had been uh, buried for a long, long time. Uh, I had an experience when I was in first grade. All the classes got together a couple times a week for an art class in a large room. So here were all the classes gathered together. And it was a substitute teacher. And she said very loudly, Paul Anderson's father is a famous cartoonist. Paul, draw us a cartoon of Marmaduke. And here was this little six-year-old boy squirming on the stool, not wanting anybody to look at him. And I remembered the comic that I'd read that morning. And so I sketched it out as best I could. And I remember just holding it out to her. And she just looked at it with a very disapproving expression and said, what is that? Mm -hmm. So I told her what the story was and how the punchline was. And she just, oh, and turned and walked away. I didn't touch a pen for years after that. It was just crushing to a little guy. Years later, I mentioned that to my father. And in his own remarkable way, he said, well, that's too bad. She just really didn't understand very much, did she? 
which was a very, I think, understanding way. And it also helped me to look at her differently than I had all those years. So then when we, I started working with him, yes, then I went and began taking art classes again and honing it and working at it. So when I began working with him, I would do some of the layouts. I would do a lot of the gags because uh, Marmaduke is about a dog. It's a big dog who has a family. He keeps them in line. He explores the neighborhood. Everybody's his friend. And it's, it's a certain type of, of humor. Dad told me early on, he said, at that point, it had been going about 50 years because it was just uh, the new century. And he said, Paul, he said, we don't preach, we don't teach, and we never talk about politics. People want to escape that. They want to have something that they can identify with and relax and put away the cares of the world. He said, we've gone from generation to generation with families on this, and that's the way you need to keep it. There are always people who want to be part of the industry, and so they'll send in a lot of gags and all. And he sent, gave, handed me quite a thick stack of gags and said, pick out the ones you would use. And I stood there while he sat and watched, and I went through them all, and I had three of them. And he said, why those three? And I said, well, Dad, the other gags are good. But that's what they are, good gags. They're not Marmaduke. And he smiled and he said, those are the three I picked out. Hmm. So I knew I was I was synced up that way. And as you're learning to draw these, I mean, there's a certain style and feel to the Marmaduke strip that you had to be consistent with because those who are fans or who consume that expect it to look the same as what your father had drawn. Oh, Yes. That is what was challenging. And not only was it challenging in that sense, but because dad's style was constantly evolving. He was changing it. You know, it's dramatic over the 50 years. It was dramatic over the decades. But he had just entered a phase where his drawing was, I would call it looser, much more relaxed. And so here I would be studying all the older ones and working on that. And then he'd come up with a change and I'd be scrambling to make that. But I wasn't doing any finishes yet. So that was good because it was a nice, long, easy transition into it. I have a granddaughter who lives back in Florida and she had some uh, learning difficulties, Asperger's. And her mom had told us that she was having difficulty reading and getting quite frustrated. And her teacher said, now, Kayla, you can do this. He said, I was the same as you growing up. And I learned how to read. And you know how I learned how to read? Well, he said, we lived in his projects, didn't have anything in our home. So I would go to the trash cans and pick out the newspapers and I would read the comics because I could look at the comic. I would try to guess at what the caption was. And then I would sound out the words. And do you know what cartoon taught me how to read? And Kayla said, what? And she said, it was Marmaduke. Oh. And Kayla looked up and said, that's what my grandpa and my great grandpa do that. And he was just amazed at that. <laughs> but that really gave Kayla the push she needed. And oh, she she's at the university level now. She's doing very, very well. But those are the rewarding kind of stories that we hear of and also the letters that just really make your heart feel good. 
So yes, so I began with doing some of the uh, cartoons, gag lines, and some of the layouts, and then easing into working with Dad. And how long did you end up working with him? It was close to 15 years. He passed away in 2015. He was 91 years old, and he was working right up until the end, hmm. which was amazing. Did a little search one time to find out how many people were still active in their fields at 91, and what I found out was there weren't that many people 91, and there weren't hardly anybody still working, let alone every day. <laughs> <laughs> and you would wake up very, very early in the morning, and uh, all those years spent bent over a drawing board with his he would hold his head and his shoulders, everything in a certain way. And it would just flow automatically, a lot of muscle memory. When I began it, I decided to transition to a Wacom tablet, which is an electronic board with a pen that uh, is really a, uh, it's a digital way of drawing. And it's a completely different feel. But since I was just starting out, I thought now's the time to do that because the industry was going from paper to digital. So it just seemed to me to make more sense. And I remember asking dad if he wanted to try it. And he said, I would have to learn how to draw all over again. Hmm. I mean, just something as different as an electronic pen on a hard surface like that. So that's how I developed doing that. When your father passed away, you were in the perfect position just to continue on with it then. Well, he took care of things again. You get the idea for the layout, and then there's a rough that you do, and then you do an overlay on that to do the final inking. Well, he would get up in the middle of the night, two or three in the morning, and he'd just start drawing. As he put it, when I draw, my mind goes to another place, and the pain goes away, because all those years of maintaining that position, he had some some pain in his body. And he left me with about three years of Sunday roughs and about five years of Bailey roughs. That's a lot of cartoons. Mm. So that really helped this process go along. It was about three months before he passed. And one time I just, I said, dad, how are you doing really? And he was walking past me and he just stopped. And it was almost as if he was talking to himself. I can still see his hands up over his head and then coming down over his head and shoulders, and he said, I can still feel the creativity washing over me. He said, I get so many ideas, it's just a flood, and I can't keep up with them all. I don't know how many ideas I'm losing, but I get all the ones I can. And he said, uh, most people my age, their bodies are doing okay, but their minds are shot. He said, I can still remember things when I was three years old, and I come to new ideas every day, but this body is wearing out and it hurts. Mm. That was how he was. And so now this is your life's work now that he has passed on. And so what does that look like for you on a daily basis? The deadlines are relentless. Six dailies and a Sunday. Every week, a new batch going in and you try to work ahead because if something unforeseen comes up in your life, you want to be able to have a little cushion there to get through it, but those evaporate real quickly. So it's nice that one can take a break and do something in the middle of the day if it comes up, but pretty much it's, it's the discipline of just doing it and staying with it and not being distracted. <laughs> I remember dad's office 
his drawing board was facing a wall with his back to the sliding glass door looking out over the lake. And I said, Dad, why are you facing the wall? Why didn't you turn it the other way? And he said, I don't want to be distracted. That was discipline. And I realize I'm talking a lot about him, but he was a marvelous, wonderful influence on my life in so many ways. Clearly he was, and and I'm sure you feel the responsibility to continue his work. Yes, I do it to honor him. That's my driving part. It's something to see people as they approach the end of their life. It's as if they want to get things settled. And I could see him going through that. And Marmaduke was part of him for almost his entire life. And I had done some Sunday pages from some layouts he'd left, but I had changed the last couple of panels. And I showed him what the rough was. I showed him what I had done and why I had changed it. And he studied it and he studied and he said, that's good. I like that. You've got this now. And it was just like he released everything when he said, you've got this now. And uh, I remember saying, Dad, Marmaduke's going to be okay. And he smiled at me and I said, it'll never be as good as you are because you're one of the top ones in the world, bar none. What I feel like is the guy holding the palette of paint up over his head for the guy who's laying on the scaffold, dipping his pen in the paint and painting the ceiling. And he looked at me and he just smiled and he said, okay then. And that I think was the big transition. My point now is not to change the style too much or anything else, it's to let the readers have their friend and to go through life with a smile every day. Shifting gears a little bit, in your life, you've had plenty of times where you've known that the Lord is mindful of you. Some of that manifests itself in your marriage to your wife. How long have you and Dorothy been married? We've been married 25 years. We met towards the end of my time in the Air Force. At the end, I was a single parent, had a young daughter. My sons were older. And as a single father, my next assignment was to the Pentagon. But I knew that I could not do a tour at that level with all that that entailed and meet my responsibilities as a father, too. So I decided it was time to punch out. So I decided to take one more tour at a base level and get things settled up. Well, in the meantime, uh, the Air Force was winnowing down civilians and they were offering early outs. So Dorothy had taken them up on that offer, got out and moved to Sarasota, Florida to the Ringling School of Art. I get my assignment and it was to MacDill Air Force Base in Tampa, Florida. Uh, so we were able to rejoin our uh, and expand our, our relationship there, and that led to our marriage. My kids were, as I said, mostly grown except for my daughter. Uh, her kids were older. As I said, when our son was on his mission in Samoa, she looked at my kids as her children. And I think in a very real sense, they looked at her in very much of a, a mother role too. And that was very, very wonderful to see that Those relationships are just not biological. They're about relationships. She was not a Latter-day Saint. She was an Episcopalian. And uh, we moved here, and she would go to the Episcopal Church. One day, I remember walking down the hallway, 
and she stopped me and she said, the missionaries are coming to dinner tomorrow night. And I said, really, how did that happen? She said, well, they were doing their knocking on doors things. And she said, other people took care of our son while he was on his mission. We're gonna take care of their kids. And so they came to dinner and I'll tell you, they were over easily three times a week eating. <laughs> they just loved coming over and I love, I love cooking too. So it was, it was wonderful. And they first came over and gave Dorothy a discussion, but it did not jive with her at all. Remember, a lot of folks have never read the Bible. And here she was with the Bible, the Book of Mormon, the Pearl of Great Price, the Doctrine and Covenants. And what's with all these footnotes? So it was pretty overwhelming, but she was just happy to have them over. And this went on for 10 years. And one day, missionaries came over and they were doing splits. They had another pair with them. One of these elders had come into this district and he was only here for three weeks before he was transferred out again. And they were sitting up at the, up at the bar at the counter and one of them bore his testimony about Joseph Smith. And it wasn't just about him. It was him looking at her and saying he was a young man with a young family and children. He was in Nauvoo and on his way to Carthage and he knew if he went, he was going to die. He could have turned around at any time, but he went through with it because that's what he knew the Lord wanted. And then he looked at her and he said, how many people would die for a lie? And the strongest thought came screaming into my head of just be quiet and stand back, which I did. And she didn't say much. And that really, really had an impact on her. And that is what turned it around for her. And it was a day or so later, she came to me and she said, Paul, do they still teach people? I said, oh, yeah. Would you like me to give them a call? <laughs> so they did. And uh, she took the discussions and it was just very, very agreeable with her then and was baptized shortly thereafter. And my folks came up and my wife's side, her kids came and grandkids came and so many of the ward. And it was the most beautiful, wonderful experience. And I don't mean this descriptively or I mean it literally, that she was literally glowing when she came out of the water. There was light. And I even had people say, what is going on here? It was that profound. And then shortly thereafter, we had state conference and we had a general authority visiting this apostle by the name of, uh, what was his last name? Nelson, I believe it was. <laughs> and so she was speaking on a Saturday night when Elder Nelson, now President Nelson was there. And it was, I believe, one of the first times that all the missionaries were allowed to be at state conference. And she pointed her address to them. And I think this is a good thing for many people on missions, going on missions, or just meeting people and befriending others. And she told them it was like having an empty glass. And each one of those missionaries who visited our home over the years put one drop of water in that glass. And it was almost imperceptible. But over time, it filled up and it filled up until finally that one put a drop in and it overflowed. And that's when she was baptized. And then uh, a year later, 
she was endowed and about four or five months later, we were sealed in the Dallas temple. But before that point, she had an accident. She had slipped and fallen in a store, went down sideways, uh, hit her side very, very hard, went to the emergency room, spent eight hours there. And they said, well, you're bruised. It'll be sore for a while, but just take some pain relievers and you'll be okay. About 10 days later, I had an appointment with my doctor and I told this man how much I love him and that I credit him with giving me so many years with my wife because of what happened. He said, well, Paul, how's Dorothy doing? And I said, just fine, but something I want to ask you. She took a bad fall about a week and a half ago. Hospital said she was bruised, but is it normal for her to still have this much pain a week and a half later? And how many would have just dismissed it with, well, yeah, if you get bruised and it's a hard surface, yeah, that'll hurt. Just keep taking the aspirins. And if it doesn't go away in a month, give me a call. I remember so well, he said, Paul, I cannot make a diagnosis without seeing her. Get her in here now. Got in, did an MRI, and they found that she was indeed just bruised. But since they took the area between her chest and her knees, they said, you've got a tumor on your kidney. She had renal cell carcinoma, kidney cancer, which is one of the ones that never presents until it gets to be stage four. Most of the cases were found incidental to something else. Went to MD Anderson and uh, were paired with a very, very, well, they're all wonderful doctors down there and removed one of her kidneys and she was pronounced clear five years later. So then it was, I think about four years later that she was baptized. Hmm. So there's that pathway. And then about three years ago, it was another <laughs> interesting, miraculous thing. We'd had the bathroom remodeled. So Dorothy was walking down the hallway in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom and the cat had decided to sleep on the floor in the middle of the hallway there. And she stepped on him and he reared up and bit her very badly. I mean, drew blood and all. It looked like it was getting infected, went to the hospital, gave her some huge, huge pills to take. She began having all sorts of abdominal and gastro problems, went back. So they scoped her. And then the doctor called us back to do it again. And he said, well, your trachea and all, your esophagus are all okay, but you've got two lesions on your pancreas. And it looked like it was pancreatic cancer. They got a biopsy, but they could never get a reading on what it was. I think we went through about four of those. Went down to MD Anderson to the same doctor who said, look, he said, the chance of having Renal cell carcinoma metastasized after 10 years is infinitesimally small. I'm not going to wait for a biopsy. I'm going to put you over to this pancreatic doctor right now because we need to move on this very quickly. So they did a biopsy and turned out it was renal cell carcinoma that had metastasized hmm. after all those years. And I remember saying to the doctor, I told you she was a special patient. <laughs> he said, yes. She had the two lesions in her pancreas. She had one in her shoulder and she had half a dozen in her lungs. So we were put up with a very, very wonderful man in the gastro department. We went back to begin the course of treatment that they had laid out. 
And I remember he said, now, the two in your pancreas, we've had very little experience with renal cell progressing like this, but they appear to be very slow growing. The one in your shoulder, we can take care of because it's bone. And the six in your lungs have resolved themselves. And I said, clarify, please. And he said, they're not there anymore. They're gone. He had a resident with him that day who interjected and said, well, sometimes we don't get the clearest look at things. And this oncologist just cut him off and said, no, we have three separate diagnoses on this. She had six in her lungs and they are not there anymore. They are gone. And Dorothy said, I've had a lot of people praying for me. And this oncologist looked at her and said, you tell them to keep it up because it works. Hmm. Now, when this began, I had gone to the medical literature to read what there was about it. And I thought the odds of her living much past eight months or a year were very, very small. And that's what we were faced with. And that's been almost three years now. She's had other things come along. Two recurrences in her shoulder. They started peppering up again in her lungs and they're growing in her pancreas. She had two rounds of immunotherapy, which as the doctor told her, we've never had anybody respond like this before. Both of them made her very, very sick. And the second time was just back in December of 20, when COVID started, we had an appointment and she'd been ill for about 10 days. We thought it was that latest immunotherapy that they'd given her. Went back down there and the doctor said, I don't like your test results. I don't like the way you look. I'm admitting you to the hospital. They admitted her, did a COVID test. She was COVID positive. They moved her to the last bed in the ICU. She would not have gone into ND Anderson if she had not been admitted to the hospital already. It was two days before I could talk to her again and I did not think she was gonna make it the way she sounded. The following day, she called me back and she was chatty and happy and talking like nothing was wrong. Mm -hmm. And I said, Dorothy, what happened? And she said, well, first of all, they started me on a round of remdesivir. And I'd been doing a lot of reading before that. And I said, Dorothy, that is what they gave the president. There are only 300,000 doses of that available in the entire country. How did you get it? She said, are you forgetting where I am? <laughs> and I said, that's right. And they also had her on convalescent plasma and she was discharged in a week. Wow. And that was the time when we were losing a lot of people in Denton County. We did not have ICU beds for them and they had no access to the drugs that MD Anderson had. So we were very, very blessed on that account. Just a short time ago, we were leaving the meeting with the oncologist and he stopped her at the door and he said, Mrs. Anderson, I want you to know that I'm using you as an example for hope to my new patients. And what a wonderful thought that in the midst of all that suffering, in the midst of all that despair and people thinking, I'm not gonna see my wife, I'm not gonna see my mother, after just a few months that he could say, I have a woman who has what you have and this is how her life has gone. So that was just a marvelous, marvelous feeling for that. And then for me, well, I'd been healthy all my life. I'm about 5'9". I think I weighed about 168 pounds. My cholesterol numbers were spot on normal. Never been to a cardiologist. There was no need for it. And uh, one day at 3.30 in the morning, I was having difficulty with what felt like a lot of heartburn. And I'd been having a lot of heartburn before then, but 
I was not comfortable. And my wife said, we're either going to the hospital or I'm calling an ambulance, your choice. And I said, well, let me think about it for a little while. Well, while I was thinking about it, she was in getting dressed to drive me to the hospital. So 3.30 in the morning, we walked in. The nurse said, what are you doing here? And she said, I think my husband's having a heart attack. And I was like, yeah, right, whatever. And so they gave me an EKG. And I remember hearing the nurse say, your husband is having a massive heart attack. And I vividly remember thinking, I've got to find a nurse who knows how to run that machine because this one doesn't have a clue what she's doing. Hmm. Well, they had a helicopter right there and they took me up to Benton. And there was a cardiologist on duty at four in the morning. And when my wife came up there, he had just come out from putting an impella heart pump in and he told my wife that my main artery was 99% blocked. My second one was 98, my third was 97, and my fourth was 93. And he could barely get that heart pump in that 93% blocked one. And how fortunate I was to be there. Then I went through a quadruple bypass. <laughs> and I was in ICU for, for a few days, and there was a nurse in there, and I finally said to her, I said, ma'am, I do not want to sound ungrateful because I am so grateful immeasurably so for everything you all have done for me here. But I am getting so tired of having these people stick their head in the doorway and saying, are you Paul Anderson? Yes, I am. What can I do for you? Oh, we heard about you and we read your records and we just wanted to see that you were really still alive. So there was that. Why am I still here? There's still a lot I have to learn. There's still a lot I have to improve on and overcome. And as I am the only member in my family, aside from my kids and all now and my wife, but you know, going back on my line, I had an awful lot of work for my ancestors that I had neglected doing because there was always tomorrow to do it. But all those tomorrows roll by and pretty soon their years and pretty soon their decades. And pretty soon you're looking at joining them and thinking, I didn't do the one thing that would have made my time worthwhile in an eternal sense. So I've been very grateful to be able to help out my ancestors that way. Well, you've experienced a series of miracles, both you and your wife, as you've gone through health challenges and had other experiences. What a blessing and to be preserved. What a great way to look at life and to do something meaningful with it. I've never ever thought that why me, why us never occurs. I just look at it that things happen in life. I don't think that Heavenly Father picks out things that inflicts on us and says, okay, now I'm Paul really needs this to grow. So bing, I'm going to do that. I don't think it works that way at all. In spite of how people express an idea. I think things just happen. And you know, the lesson of Job is it doesn't matter what you're doing in life. Horrible things can happen. But God is there to rely on and to give comfort and to hold you while you're going through it. That's the lesson. It's not that he did this to you so you would become a better person. No. The things happen and how you respond to it and who you seek. That's what makes a better person. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate you joining us on this episode and sharing so much about your life and these wonderful blessings that you've received. Thank you very much. I know uh, a lot of people don't get newspapers anymore, but 
there's an awful lot of wonderful comics that uh, Andrews McNeil Syndicate has that are up on gocomics.com. And uh, now it's a whole new thing where people just turn on their phone in the morning and there in their inbox is their latest favorite comic strip or panel or whatever it may be. So I just had to get that in there. So thank you. And that's how we can find Marmaduke today most easily. Yes. Wonderful. Thanks again. Appreciate you being with us. Thank you. And thank you for doing this. Our guest on this episode of Lone Star Latter-day Saint Voices has been Paul Anderson of Flower Mound, Texas. After our visit, I asked Paul about the future of Marmaduke. He told me he plans to continue meeting deadlines each week, and he said he recognizes that, like his father, he's blessed to be able to not just work for a living, but to work doing something he truly loves. For Lone Star Latter-day Saint Voices, I'm Eric Egan.